This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast with me, Johnny Hart. Coming up, we look back on and look ahead to the week's business and markets news with Oanda Senior Market Analyst Craig Earlham. And it's a very good morning to you, Craig. How are you doing? Wonderful. How are you? I'm very good. It's been a fascinating week as far as the election goes, up and down for both the Labour and Conservative parties. But I think the most significant moment of the last seven days as far as the election goes is Nigel Farage's uh, unilateral alliance, uh, as he's uh, called it. Um, That may have saved the Conservatives. If we look back on this in a few weeks' time, that may be the moment where everybody said that was the difference between a Conservative majority and not. I actually think it's the next few weeks that's going to potentially save the, the, the Conservative majority or not. I think this is step one towards that. It's funny, uh, Nigel Farage, we all know, absolutely loves the spotlight, but equally this has been quite a devastating week uh, for the man himself. Uh, he obviously uh, made this announcement. Now, he was hoping for a real alliance, not a, a, a unilateral alliance, which um, I, I'm sure is not unintentional in the use of the wording. He wants to highlight the fact that the Conservatives were not willing to negotiate so he's kind of, this feels like a phase one. If he, if this was a real uh, alliance, if this was a real deal, then what we'd be seeing is he'd be pulling out the marginal Labour seats too, especially the Leave voting seats, and giving the Conservatives a free run at these, focusing on the seats that the Conservatives have no chance at in the in the Labour Leave areas. But he's not. He's still leaving the room for negotiations, still leaving the next week or so, whereby uh, I believe candidates can still withdraw from the process despite uh, prior to the ballot papers uh, being printed. So what this means is there's still room for a little bit of negotiation on both sides. Now, the Conservatives have shown no desire to negotiate so far, but I think that we're going to be all too aware that having a Brexit party candidate within these uh, Labour marginal leave seats is going to be problematic and could ultimately put another Labour candidate into Parliament and affect their ability to get a majority. It's all well and good not running in these 317 seats, and don't get me wrong, there's going to be a massive sigh of relief, but that wasn't enough to secure a majority for Theresa May, so a lot more needs to be achieved. So like I say, it's been quite a bad week for Nigel Farage. It's been a better week for the Conservatives. But if, if they... If Dod- both the last few um, days though, hasn't it, with the floods up in Yorkshire and Derbyshire and also um, we had the latest NHS statistics as well, which must have come as bad news uh, for the inner sanctum within the Conservative election strategy. Uh, better over the last 48 hours for the Labour Party, even though they've had uh, a pretty dodgy week earlier on in this uh, last seven days. Yeah, it's almost hard to pick apart because every day something massive seems to happen and we yeah. seem to have more uh, incredible talking points once again. I mean, this has been Brexit. This is the election campaign around Brexit and therefore to expect this to be any different was never going to uh, happen. So yeah, it has been quite a monumental week uh, on that front. And I don't think any party is necessarily doing itself any favours. They're almost relying on others to do them more favours. Uh, the one area where we are seeing parties trying to do themselves favours is promises on spending and each of them are competing uh, strongly on that front. Obviously, only last night we had the uh, Labour pledge to uh, put free broadband in households across the UK and businesses as well. 
at a cost of around uh, £20 billion and a part nationalisation of uh, BT. And again, this is always always going to worry those on the right who are worried about uh, nationalisation, especially of uh, private firms, especially of stock market listed firms and, um, uh, and at a price that's not uh, relative to the stock market. Because as always with this process, the Labour Party hasn't just promised to part nationalise, they've promised to do it at the price which they deem to be fair. Now, the stock market may disagree and that's going to run into many legal complications uh, as well, but again, do you think it's a vote winner though? Because you know, yeah, it's uh, free broadband is appealing, but do you think people would have that as one of their priorities? Surely it would be more money into education, NHS, and so on, uh, maybe even tax cuts for those who aren't uh, better off, you know, that, that those who are lower down in terms of income. Um, free broadband, I mean, it's it sounds good, but it's not. I don't. Is it a decider for a lot of people? I doubt it. I'm, I'm not so sure, to be honest. I mean, it's one of a number of things which they're trying to effectively convince people on. It's not just the broadband. This is just the latest uh, of a number of promises. But I think this this technically falls under the scope of infrastructure and people are always in favour of infrastructure spending um, in order to try and better our everyday lives, improve ability to say work from home, improve abilities of small businesses, improve the ability of flexible working, improve the ability of households to have access uh, in more rural areas that, that's to pe- that us in more urban areas take for granted. But we're here to talk about markets, Craig. How has this uh, statement from John McDonnell affected, for instance, uh, the price of BT shares and uh, some of those uh, other companies in the broadband sector? Um, what, what might actually end up happening is the companies won't be uh, worth quite so much and won't be so expensive to buy out. Well, naturally, that is the worry. It, the worry is that if this becomes a serious proposition and you've got someone promising to pay less money for these shares um, uh, than, than they're currently going on the stock market, then people are going to be worried about the value of the shares. Now, BT is off today just under 3%. Yeah. So clearly, those comments have had an impact. In terms of what impact they've had on the uh, on other markets, like the pound, it's had no impact. The, the pound is where it is. The pound has barely moved now for the last few weeks. Ever since it became clear we were heading for an election, the pound has just steadied itself. What are markets betting on it? the moment is it going to be a slim majority for boris johnson i mean if you look at the the bookies not necessarily uh the speculators within the the markets it's it's sort of evens really isn't it for a, a tour a, a sort of small tory majority at the moment yeah, that seems to be what people are leaning towards at this moment in time. But as I've said before in this show, uh, and I'm someone who likes to make predictions, this is the most unpredictable election uh, mm. that I've ever seen. And and I think it's extremely difficult because all the usual metrics which we use to try and make assumptions, all the 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 the, the efforts that we go to to try and justify our our, our reasons for why we think something's going to happen. The problem is there's just there's just too many too much crossover amongst the different parties. Now we have the Tories promising to spend at levels that the Labour were recklessly recklessly promising to spend that in 2017 we have uh, half a more than half of labor seats in the in the previous parliament were leave voting seats so there's that crossover with the, we we tr- you typically associate brexit with the tory party well actually it's clearly not uh, actually true so trying to therefore predict who's going to vote how where and how and then we've got the lib dems we've got the brexit party thrown into the mix where they're kind of one policy parties at this moment in time makes things very difficult to really anticipate ultimately it's going to come down to the alliances which are formed over the next yeah. uh, eight or nine days whether the brexit party can make any leeway with the conservatives 
how strong the alliance is going to be on the left side. If the Brexit party does make an alliance last minute with the Conservatives, will the Labour engage more with the other parties uh, and form an, a, an effective second referendum alliance? How, I, how I do you like, do that? Does it, are, are the sort of nearest competitors, uh, e.g. the Liberal uh, Democrats, will they just sort of not, prob- not bother to campaign in those areas or, or spend hardly any money? Is that how it would work? Because yeah, it couldn't be anything official, could it? Well, I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, but I believe that uh, there is still time for a, a, a candidate to effectively pull out of the race uh, prior to the papers being printed. Right, uh, and therefore, okay. um, I mean, exactly like I say, don't quote me on that. I'm not an expert in this area. That's just something I've been seeing this morning. And and they and if that's the case, then that leaves us a little bit of time for an alliance to be made. And ultimately, then you will just pull out. If it goes past that date and we get an effective alliance, I imagine that will, uh, that will change and that will become one candidate campaigning to support another um, similar in, in many ways to what we see with for example when you see leadership campaigns the democratic race in the US when one candidate falls out they tend to support another candidate within the race and try and gen- generate support for them um, you could imagine it, it could be something like that if we go past that period when the name has to be removed from the paper but ultimately the most effective way would be for the candidate to uh, drop out altogether before the papers are actually uh, printed at the moment Labour have shown no desire to enter into that kind of race but neither the Conservatives if one of them buckled I imagine the other would follow suit and it would very much become a second referendum versus Brexit uh, election again. The crazy thing is if you look at the polls and uh, the Conservatives are doing rather well at the moment as as high as 40%, even with 40% of the popular vote, they may not be able to form a majority government. It's crazy. Well, we've seen the popular vote isn't always reflective of the actual outcome anyway. Um, in the US, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Donald yeah. Trump is in the White House. The reason why we've got this first-past-the-post system is because it works better on a regional basis. Obviously, you have clusters of people who are in the same area of the country. If you just had a first, if you just had a, um, a popular vote determining the outcome, then you'd be heavily favoured towards certain more populous areas. So there has to be that. If I'm not mistaken, that's the reason why we have this first-past-the-post system. So. Yeah, you could, but that, and that's what I said the other week as well. Like the interesting thing about this is you could effectively have two alliances here who both think they've got a mandate at the end of this. You could have Jeremy Corbyn as part of a second referendum alliance in number 10 and then you could have the uh, Brexit alliance who win the popular vote. Who has the actual mandate at that point? It's really difficult to say. So I this, this election may not solve all, but what I will say is the next few weeks are going to be absolutely incredible. Yep. And the next week alone could actually be quite remarkable. And I think next week is the first debate as well on ITV between yep. Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. Controversial, of course, because it means there's no uh, Nigel Farage, no Joe Swinson, um, no Nicola Sturgeon or anyone else uh, who wants to be represented from these parties who people are going to be voting for. And so it's a quite a controversial decision just to pick the two people who could possibly be prime minister in this particular election. Ordinarily, you can kind of understand. But in this particular election, I think that's quite controversial. Let's talk a bit more economics, shall we? And uh the Tories must have breathed a heavy sigh of relief when they saw the latest UK data and GDP figures out. It wasn't uh, unexpected, but it confirmed that we were not in recession. So that's one little uh, bump uh, that they've managed to get uh, o- over the road. Um, the UK data this week wasn't that significant apart from that, really, was it? No, I mean, in a week, in, in a period, um, an election period, when PR has been so 
dreadful for all concerned. This would have just been the latest douse uh, of bad mm. PR for the Conservative Party. Like you mentioned uh, earlier on, they had the, the NHS uh, story earlier on this morning about the waiting times that are the longest they've been since, what was it, the start of the uh, the start of the early 2000s. Uh, and, and obviously that's a bad PR message when you are effectively campaigning on strengthening the NHS and being uh, strong proponents of the NHS. If waiting times are the longest they've been in more than a decade, then that's not really sending a good message on what you've done for the NHS so far. So why should you be trusted to take the NHS further? So that is uh, in, an incredible embarrassment. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot of that over the next week during the uh, during the campaigning, during that particular uh, debate between Corbyn and um, uh, and Johnson. But they're not going to be talking about a recession. And like I say, again, that would have been another, another PR blunder. But they were comfortably inside. We talked about that first month of July, 0.4% of growth effectively ended any debate that there was going to be about the possibility of a recession even before you start talking about stockpiling. But the markets just overlooked it. It was kind of expected, just below ex- uh, market expectations, didn't really have any impact on the markets. Neither did the CPI data, which came out slightly shy of expectations as well. Energy costs um, actually is what drew that down from 17 to 1.5%, so going further away from the Bank of England's target, but unlikely to have any impact on the actual Bank of England decision-making over the next few months because we've got an election and uh, Brexit, which are obviously going to be far more important on that front. We also had retail sales data uh, from the uh, UK as well earlier so on healthy. this morning. That was slightly shy again, yeah. but again, we're in that time of year when I don't really pay too much attention to retail sales. People are saving for Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Christmas, spending Christmas presents, Christmas nights out, uh, parties, etc. It's not really a month for going out and splurging. So the fact that we saw that uh, decline, I don't think people are ever going to be too concerned, especially when you've got the added layer of Brexit uh, uncertainty on top of that. And then finally, we had the jobs data. Now, the jobs data is where people did see a little bit of a softness um, and maybe a little bit of cause for concern. Again, it had no impact on the markets because the markets are looking well beyond this. But it was the jobs data where people saw potentially a little bit of cause for concern because while the unemployment rate dropped to 3.8%, the claimant count uh, change actually rose 33,000. And this is a trend that we are starting to see appearing is that we are seeing the number of people, uh, um, the claimant count is starting to rise and actually has been rising Why really that, since towards the back end of last year. It's really difficult to say, to be honest, to really put a, an explanation on this because it's been rising at a time when we are seeing uh, earnings strong, when we are seeing the labour market tight, when we are seeing unemployment employment low and continuing to fall. Is it a Brexit, Brexit factor, do you think? Again, it's really difficult to put one element on it because when the other figures are healthy, if the other figures were looking less healthy, then potentially you could say that this is a sign of weakness in the labour market, but the other figures are healthy. So um, it's it's really hard to just put your finger on it and especially when there is so much uncertainty in the economy when you do have such a flexible labour market when you do have all of these different factors then it's really difficult to say to put your finger on exactly what is causing that but people are noticing that trend forming and therefore that's one possible area of concern within the jobs report but again from a markets perspective it was ignored we move on because Brexit and election Let's leave the election and the the UK I hate to say this but there are other things going on in the world (laughs) Uh, in fact, quite some quite serious things. We'll talk about Hong Kong in a minute. But uh, firstly, the United States. Uh, I want your update, your weekly update on the trade war. Uh, we've got uh, some Powell testimonies uh, this week and uh, politically the Trump impeachment proceedings underway. Let's start with the trade war bulletin from Craig Earlham. Yeah, there isn't really a, a bulletin. It's just oh. been it's just been a lot of rhetoric this week. It's It's been a really funny week because... 
No actual real progress has been made, but there has been a lot of commentary almost on a daily basis, whether it's Trump saying whether we haven't discussed rolling back tariffs or we haven't agreed to roll back tariffs, whether it's the Chinese side saying that tariffs need to be rolled back or speaking about per- the other talk about agricultural purchases and maybe the US side saying they're not high enough. Then we have, but there's always in, in, in the middle of this, there's always Trump or someone saying, but I'm really optimistic about a deal and I'm sure it's going to go through. We're so close. We had Larry Kudlow coming out this morning saying he was very uh, optimistic about the the way things are going uh, but then last time I think if I'm not mistaken last time Larry Kudlow came out being really positive talking about how great things are going uh, and ta- and said that um, we are looking at potentially rolling back tariffs Trump came out immediately after and said we're not discussing rolling out uh, re- removing tariffs so when you've got all of these contradictory comments you wonder which way to go the most interesting thing about the trade war this week is that markets have been very responsive to it so even though we've become accustomed to this constant flow of rhetoric this constant flow of uh, commentary tweets etc the markets are still very responsive to it. And I find that the most fascinating part of this because it means we get very volatile markets. They are gradually creeping higher on optimism. But as far as I'm concerned, it was meant to be next week that we were meant to be having the deal signed off in Chile at the Apex summit, which was ultimately cancelled because of political unrest there. That was obviously always going to be too optimistic. Then the thought was that it's going to be at the NATO summit in London at the start of December. I'm looking at the clock now and I'm thinking three weeks until uh, this summit and we're still talking about which how many tariffs are going to be rolled back, agricultural purchases, having agreed a date, having agreed a time. I'm, I'll be surprised if it's this year at this point because they, we just we don't seem to... Not only are the I's not dotted and the T's not crossed, it, it, it seems like we're, we're far away from this document actually being finished. So... Um, uh, I'm a little bit more pessimistic, but uh, as I always say, investors are eternal optimists, so they're very much buying into the positive headlines. Trump needs a deal, though, doesn't he, really, bearing in mind uh, politically he's in a bad place at the moment. We don't know what's going to happen with these impeachment proceedings. Even if he's impeached, the chances are he's not going to lose the presidency anyway uh, with the Republicans uh, dominant. Um, although, looking ahead to the election, which is just about one year from today, um it's uh, anybody's guess is going to who's going to win that. Maybe the in- impeachment proceedings might help him uh, in the election because uh, you know he- he'll be uh, looked at as sort of slightly vulnerable, and uh, people might get behind him. Okay, so there's there's so much to say on what you've just said. I'll start with there was, there was an article this morning. I forget which website it was on, so um, I, I apologise, but it was saying there was a Republican poll that showed that since the impeachment started, his poll rating has gone up by two percent. His points, his approval rating, sorry, not his poll yeah. ratings, his approval rating right. has gone up by two percent. So this clearly, it was a Republican poll, so it's worth noting. But it's, this has clearly benefited him as far as his base is concerned. Um, they very much buy into the narrative that this is just um, the Democrats just trying to build, bring down Trump. In in any way possible and they don't clearly have faith that they can do that this time next year so they're trying to do it prior to the actual election taking place they're buying into the witch hunt uh, narrative so yes the impeachment seems to be having an effect this way then you talk about the trade deal and yes a trade deal now for Trump would be perfect going into that election year. He could say, we've got phase one phase one done, we're going to be harder on phase two, and we are going to get this over the line. We've shown we can do this, we've shown we can do that. Going into an election without a deal, I think, is going to be very difficult because uh, it, it, people are going to start feeling the pain of the economic slowdown soon. And while he can continue to point the finger of blame at Powell, and there are going to be people who are going to believe that narrative, there's a lot of people who are going to be talking about the fact that it is a trade war which is causing this global economic slowdown. 
And there's going to be plenty of people who are going to be hearing that narrative as well. So I think he really, really would like a trade deal prior uh, to the election taking place. And you can see that he is concerned about uh, trade wars because there was the reports this week that he's going to push back uh, tariffs on EU automakers by six months. Clearly, he doesn't want to be facing trade wars on two fronts and he's not confident that this one's wrapped up enough yet that he can start heading, uh, looking, uh, turning its attention towards um, Germany. In terms of the actual presidential race itself, yeah, it looks like he's going to have very little competition. The the Democrats in the in the US, much like the Labour Party here, is very much veered to the left, so we're talking about people like Bernie Sanders as possible presidential candidates. I think Joe Biden has suffered as a result of this Ukraine story, probably more so than President Trump himself. Yeah. And the, ultimately, it's not ideal when your son is earning, I can't remember the exact figure, what was it, $50,000 a month to be on the board of a, a Ukrainian uh, company um, that's being investigated. It doesn't necessarily, whether you agree with what Trump has done or not, and whether you agree with using US funds to uh, get to, to gain politically against a potential opponent, it does look dodgy. The fact and, and the fact that this story is being talked about all the time about Biden's son being in that position and how he got into that position and why he's in that position yeah. in a country like the Ukraine. You've got to wonder who it's actually hurting more. Lock him up. Lock him up. Exactly. So yeah. maybe Trump's actually not too bothered about this impeachment after all, because it means that con- people are constantly yeah. talking about Joe but, Biden and his son. Yeah, but Biden isn't necessarily a, an existential threat anyway to Trump. Maybe he was seen a, as the biggest threat uh, as, as far yeah. as the Democrats mm. were concerned. Uh, and now what we're left with is we're left with uh, a few candidates Elizabeth who are Warren. far more left. Elizabeth yeah. Warren, far yeah. more left leaning, and I'd say the U.S. is far less. Um, the the U.S. the the U.S. is the left that the far left appeals far less to the US than it does the UK yeah. uh, and therefore you've got people now looking at the democratic racing and the, the the most likely people to actually win this race are on the far left side and now we're talking about more candidates entering the race on the democratic side yeah. to offer a, a real a bit of competition or Mr from, Bloomberg Mr Bloomberg that, can you imagine that that, that race if yeah. the, if the presidential race was Bloomberg versus Trump I think that would make things extremely interesting yeah. uh, should he choose to do so but he's backed out before of this he's re- it looks as though he's interested in re-entering but he's what, he's 77 years well. old yeah. uh, I don't think he probably wants to be spending the next five years but equally he doesn't want to see Trump in there for five years either so that's yeah. why he's being tempted back in but I think it, so the, I think that's going to be really interesting over the next month or so to see how many people re-enter the race because they see um, the moves that are happening currently as being really detrimental to the Democrats' chances in the elections this time next year. So that's my full answer to your question. And nice I'm sure answer. I'll probably miss some off. That's a, that's a good answer. Uh, we've got the Fed minutes next week. Uh, we had Jay Powell's testimony this week. What are we expecting over the next week or so? Yeah, nothing, to be honest. I mean, we can wrap this one up really quickly. The Fed's cut interest rates three times in three meetings. They deemed at the end of the mid-cycle adjustment, the markets were happy, the, inv- the yield curve is not inverted anymore. Recession red flags have disappeared. Slowdown flags are still there, but people are okay with the slowdown. You say the word recession and it scares people. You say slowdown, it doesn't scare people quite so much. Uh, and people are quite content. The only person who's not obviously content is Trump himself. He's going to continue to uh, lambast uh, uh, Powell and the Fed right up until election day next year because he's the the puppet. He is the one, the, the marker that he laid down 18 months ago. He was the one who was always going to be blamed if there's a slowdown going into the election day because of the trade war. He set Powell up for this straight from the word go. So he's not going to give that up just because he cut interest rates three times in three meetings. But the Fed's not going to do anything in the minute. So I'm really going to highlight that. Okay. I mentioned it briefly before Hong Kong. We've seen a huge escalation this week. Uh, awful scenes uh, on our TV screens. And that has affected markets, hasn't it? 
Yeah, it really has. Um, we've, we've seen a little bit of impact on the markets before, but they've fallen around 4.5%, I think, this week. They've risen a little bit today because there hasn't been a massive escalation overnight last night. Um, but, the, it, I mean, it, for me, you're looking at this and you're thinking, I'm so kind of surprised even that it's bounced back today because you're thinking, well, what could the weekend potentially bring? What does that mean for the open of the markets at the start of next week? Um, that would be what I'd be a little bit, I'd be worried about what how much further it can escalate given what we've already seen this week. I mean, we've seen one protester die. We've seen someone set on fire. We've um, we've seen someone shot with live ammunition. Um, we're, we're seeing people barricaded into uh, into the university there it's it's really really frightening season uh, it's and you wonder just how this comes to a conclusion neither side looks ready to back down at this stage how much more needs to happen before it before it stops the the tones that we're seeing from the chinese side and from the hong kong authorities suggest that they're not going to give up and if anything it could get more fierce uh, i'm very I, I i think many people in that area of the world are now extremely concerned uh, and i think that's probably why it's taking its toll on the markets a lot right now that's why we've seen the stock market come off uh, and that's why we are seeing potentially start either starting to see or going to start to see some capital flight there people moving their money away and saying Do you know what I'm, I'm not happy with where this where this where the direction of travel that this is heading and where this could possibly end up one thing that makes this um interesting from a market purely markets perspective is the hong kong dollar is pegged to the us dollar and we've seen how these pegs can go at times now at the moment it doesn't look too too strained in fact it's not really trading at the top end of its range i think the peg's 7.75 to 7.85 at this moment in time it's not trading right at the top end of its range. But if it does start to move towards the top end of the range, it's now at 7.828. So we're a little bit off the top of that uh, range at the moment. But if it does start to really push the top end of that range and we start to see the Hong Kong authorities having to dig deep into their reserves, then at what point could that potentially go? Uh, we've seen pegs go before. Remember the Swiss franc crisis, the, the Swiss franc uh, back in 2015 when they got pushed over and over and over again and eventually the peg did disappear. And we saw what kind of a, uh, a move that could come on the back of that. We're not at those levels yet, but you wonder how, how long it's going to take until we do get to those levels and whether that could be something that breaks at some point. So maybe something to keep an eye on, even if it's unlikely to go in the near term. Spain is another volatile country, of course, not to the extent that we've seen in Hong Kong, but uh, some of the visuals that we've had over the last uh, few weeks uh, with the massive dispute between uh, Spain and Catalonia uh, are alarming, considering that's Western Europe. But we've had a Spanish elec- uh, election outcome, um, an agreement uh between the socialists and the Podemos, but still short of a majority. Still short majority, actually. The socialists lost three seats in this election, and I think that's probably focused the minds here. We've got to remember that the socialists won the last election as well. They were in negotiations for months with Podemos, uh, as well as others, uh, the, 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 the Citizens' Party and others, to try and form a majority. They failed, which is why this election needed to take place. And um, they actually lost three seats. They thought they were going to win potentially more seats. They lost three seats. And I think that really focused uh, the minds here, especially when you're looking at the Vox Party, the far right party here, uh, very much a nationalist party. Um, they saw their their the, the, the seats go from 24 to 52, so they more than doubled the number of seats which they're now going to have in Parliament. And I think that's probably worried a people more, uh, a lot of people more towards the left. So we've seen. Within 24 hours, we saw the socialists and Podemos actually come to an agreement. Um, now, given that those months of negotiations that yielded nothing for them to come to an agreement within 24 hours is quite extraordinary. Um, and I think the the breaking point there was that was to do with what ty- uh, what kind of uh, positions would be offered to Podemos as part of the minority part of this coalition. Um, so uh, the Podemos leader will be, I think, deputy one of the deputy prime ministers. Um, 
and there'll be, I think, three other posts which will be given to Podemos uh, party members. So this is the first step, but it's not good enough quite now. At that, uh, between the two parties, that, they, that gives them 155 seats in Parliament. They'll need 176 in order to get a majority. So they'll at least, at least need some form of agreements or abstentions from other parties in order to get that to get to that number. So the negotiations aren't over. We're not at a government yet, and there is still the possibility for yet another election next year. But this is an important first step and a step that probably should, probably should have come four or five months ago. Okay, we're coming to the end of this podcast, Craig, but uh, before we let you go, uh, a a brief overview of earnings season, if you can. Um, So earnings season went a little bit better than expected, but they always do. Uh, we're pretty much entirely way through it now. I think we're more than 90, 95% of the way through. All the big companies that everyone will be aware of have already reported. Um, earnings uh, declined more than 2%. I think it was 2.4% this time last week. I haven't checked the most late, the latest figures, but it's not going to be too far too much better than that so just around minus 2.4 percent in terms of earnings decline for the last uh, 12 months this is the third consecutive quarter that we've actually seen an earnings uh, decline uh, so that's the first time since uh, 2016 it's also the worst contraction we've seen i think since 2016 as well um and we're expecting another contraction in the fourth quarter but then we're going to go back to positive earnings growth uh, seems to be the the consensus here people will probably look back on this as a decent enough earnings season though even though the, everything i've just said i think expectations were very low going into it i think expectations going into it were for a decline of around 4.8 percent now expectations are always lower going into these things and always improve as the season goes on. I think people typically set the bar quite low. Uh, but uh, I think people are looking at this say, it, well, it wasn't great, it wasn't bad, we'll take it. And finally, um, what should we look ahead to next week? So next week, there's um, a few things. It's interesting, actually. Next week is really pretty quiet. So uh, we do have one central bank meeting. That's the South Africa Reserve Bank. We don't talk about South Africa that much on on this podcast, but we probably should, to be honest. I mean, it's a really interesting um, uh, it's a really interesting country. There's a lot going on. Next week we have the Reserve Bank meeting. We're not expecting a rate cut there, but uh, I think analyst expectations on Reuters were 21 for no cut, three for a cut. So there there is a cut expected soon. I think the, the from from these polls that we're seeing that's expected around the second quarter of next year. So we We've got a little bit of a breathing space in terms of when that cut will come at this uh, at this moment, but we are heading in that direction. Unemployment is uh, taking it higher in South Africa. It's currently now at uh, 29.1%. So obviously extremely high levels of unemployment. The, uh, the growth indicators are heading in the wrong direction as well. So there is a lot of unrest here. Towards the back end of the week, we also have a ratings review from, um, from S&P. Now of the three major ratings agencies, only Moody's now holds... Um, uh, South Africa and investment grade status if that's lost then that could play havoc with their market to play havoc with the currency with their bonds uh, as well uh, because obviously there's only there's certain funds which can only hold investment grade um, debt so if if they lose it with all three rating, ratings agency then that could be quite devastating and that's been something that people have been watching for some time thankfully though it's S&P that's going to review them at the end of next week so that shouldn't be overly important but certainly one to keep a close eye on and apart from that we do have minutes from the ECB that's going to be a non-event you'll remember that the ECB meeting last month was more of a homage to Mario than it was anything else There was the announcements came the month before the QE package 20 billion euros a month started at the beginning of this month so there's going to be nothing I don't think of interest in those ECB minutes like i said we've already mentioned the fed minutes as well and a few pmis towards the back end of the week as well but i think broadly speaking it's going to be a highly politically uh, focused week next week uh, as far as marketing concerned uk us china and of course hong kong 
we live in historic times, don't we? We do. I think we'll be looking back on this one day as pretty, uh, it's quite extraordinary, to be honest. Yeah. Craig, thanks very much for joining us today. Look ahead to seeing you again next time. Thank you. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.